0: For more information and tickets at cap.ucla.edu and KPFK.
1: And this is
2: KPFK.
0: We shall not
2: be 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Freedom. We shall not be moved.
3: BFK
4: Rebel Alliance News, Los
2: Angeles.
4: All right, party people, welcome to your Rebel Alliance News for Tuesday here in beautiful Los Angeles, California. We've got a very, very exciting show for you tonight. A lot of twists, a lot of turns, a lot of big headlines, like another Gavin Newsom recall effort in California. A Chicago cop no longer identifies as white mayor of London plans to seize Russian property. Julian Assange's sham of a hearing. The deep state sinks its hooks in. Your non-NATO news, all this and much, much more coming right up tonight here on Rebel Alliance News. Good evening, I'm Jack Kennedy. Opponents of California Governor Gavin Newsom are making another attempt to recall him from office, citing the state's looming budget deficit, among other policy issues that have negatively impacted the Golden State because of his alleged mismanagement. Rescue California, a citizen-led group, said it planned to serve Newsom's office on Monday with recall papers, the first step in what it would be a lengthy and expensive process to put the recall question before voters. The group said that Newsom's response to a range of pressing issues, including homelessness, the increased cost of living, his response to the COVID-19 pandemic, illegal immigration and crime has been largely inadequate. On their website, the group said Newsom, quote, "...has abandoned the state to advance his presidential ambitions." Unquote. Newsom, a strong supporter of President Biden, has been seen as a likely choice to launch a presidential bid in the future. Future speculation about his aspirations arose after he visited Israel and China last year. He also kept schools closed during the COVID-19 lockdowns and weakened public safety so much that it created an epidemic of smash-and-grab robberies that have plagued the state, the group said. In addition, Rescue California cited California's high tax rate, increased home prices that have put homeownership out of reach for many, and the spending of billions of dollars on homeless programs that have repeatedly failed. In a post on X... Newsom blamed Trump Republicans, a descriptor that seems to apply to everyone who doesn't support him.
2: Don't push me because I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes it makes me wonder how I keep from going under.
4: Hackers working for the Black Cat ransomware gang are behind the outage at United Health Technology Unit that has snarled prescription deliveries for seven days. UnitedHealth discovered that a suspected nation-state-associated threat actor breached part of the Change Healthcare Information Technology Network on Wednesday, according to a filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Thursday. UnitedHealth isolated and disconnected the impact systems immediately upon detection of the threat, the filing said. Change Healthcare offers tools for payment and revenue cycle management, and its system outages have disrupted operations in pharmacies and health systems across the country. UnitedHealth said late Monday night that more than 90% of the nation's pharmacies have set up modified electronic claims processing workarounds, while the rest have set up offline processing systems. Health data is attractive to bad actors because it can be easily monetized and sold on the dark web to perpetuate other crimes like identity theft and healthcare fraud, said John Riggi, National Advisor for Cybersecurity and Risk at the American Hospital Association. McDonald's franchise owners in California are trying to exact revenge on lawmakers who backed the state's minimum wage hike for fast food workers. According to the Sacramento Bee, The California Alliance of Family-Owned Businesses' Political Action Committee has spent more than half a million dollars on ad campaigns targeting at least two Democratic Assembly members who are running for county and municipal seats. Citing campaign finance filings, Sacramento Bee reports the PAC has spent $297,000 on negative mailers targeting Assemblyman Chris Holden, Pasadena, who is now seeking a seat on the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. It also spent $300,000 on a campaign targeting Assemblyman Kevin McCarthy, who is running for mayor of Sacramento. The minimum wage for fast food workers in California will climb to $20 an hour in April after lawmakers passed and Governor Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill 1228 last year. Holden was the lead author of AB 1228. Executives at McDonald's and Chipotle Mexican Grill have already indicated that menu price hikes are coming, and two large Pizza Hut operators in California recently eliminated their in house delivery drivers ahead of the New law. Politicians should know that if they agree to carry water for those who threaten our businesses, they'll be opposed. Carrie Harper Howie, a Los Angeles McDonald's owner-operator, said in a statement to the B. The Service Employee International Union, which successfully lobbied for the wage hike, called the pack spending a shameful corporate attack. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Southern California Edison has reached a settlement agreement with the United States, agreeing to pay $80 million to resolve claims stemming from the 2017 Thomas fire in Los Padres National Forest, the Justice Department announced. Settlement finalized on Friday. Marks the largest wildfire cost recovery settlement by the United States in the Central District of California. The Thomas Fire, which ravaged more than 280,000 acres, including significant national forest system lands in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties, ignited in two locations on the evening of December 4, 2017. The lawsuit filed by the United States in 2020 on behalf of the Forest Service against SCE sought to recoup costs incurred fighting the Thomas Fire and damages to the Los Padres National Forest. The United States alleged that SCE-owned power lines were responsible for both ignitions of the fire. According to the allegations, SCE power lines made contact with each other during a high wind event, causing heated material to ignite dry vegetation below the conductors. Additionally, an SCE power pole transformer failure led to an energized power line falling to the ground, igniting adjacent dry vegetation. This record settlement provides significant compensation to taxpayers for the extensive costs of fighting the Thomas Fire and for the widespread damage to the public lands, said First Assistant United States Attorney Joseph T. McNally. SCE agreed to pay the $80 million settlement within 60 days of the effective date of the settlement agreement, which was February 23rd. The response on Twitter seemed to be unanimous. SCE will just raise the prices to compensate for the loss. (laughs)
3: KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles.
4: The New York Times reports that the CIA has helped Ukraine establish a dozen secret bases along its border with Russia to monitor Russian troop movements and missile attacks. Sources from the U.S., Europe, and Ukraine revealed that these bases not only track military activities, but also train a new wave of Ukrainian spies for operation in Russia, Europe, Cuba, and beyond. This intelligence partnership has significantly benefited Washington, making Kiev a key ally. Ukrainian bases have also outperformed the CIA's own efforts in Russia in intercepting communications. Initiated in 2016, the development of these bases spanned the administration of Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. Initially, there were concerns about working closely with Kiev due to fears of provoking Moscow and the risk of Ukrainian intelligence being infiltrated partnership deepened in 2015 when the Ukrainian military intelligence unexpectedly shared top secret documents with the CIA, building a foundation of trust. This move led to regular intelligence sharing between Ukraine and the U.S. A former senior U.S. official remarked that the U.S. embassy in Kiev became a crucial hub for intelligence on Russia. Before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a Russian intelligence chief reportedly told Vladimir Putin that the CIA and MI6 Had significantly influence in Kiev, suggesting Ukraine was being used as a base for operations against Moscow. Putin has since claimed that the CIA supported the change in Ukrainian government in 2014.
2: Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. (laughs) It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under.
4: Julian Assange's hearing in the UK is being presided over by a judge whose career was affected by the very information WikiLeaks released. Russell Brand discusses how this makes a fair hearing impossible.
5: Julian Assange is perhaps the defining anti-establishment figure of our age. So when he has a hearing to see whether or not he will be able to appeal against extradition, you want a very neutral judge who has no ties to MI6, the Ministry of Defence, or the establishment at all. You feel it's pivotal? It is pivotal. Indeed, everything around us demonstrates that we are at a crucial moment. Even the current hearing that Julian Assange is having to fight for the right to have an appeal against his extradition. Look at the layers before Julian Assange will get anything approaching justice. He's currently, as you know I'm sure, in Belmarsh without trial and one of the two judges that will be hearing the case previously represented MI6 and the Ministry of Defence who were both exposed by WikiLeaks that Julian Assange obviously set up. So what are the chances of Julian Assange getting a fair trial when one of the judges has explicit connections to organisations negatively affecting by WikiLeaks. Just to give you a sort of broad open take, Julian Assange is a key, pivotal, anti-establishment figure. The establishment literally is an immersive entity. To get any kind of fair trial, Julian Assange shouldn't be having this hearing in the UK or the US or the Anglophonic world. He'd have to go to somewhere like Ecuador or Peru or Switzerland or Iceland or something because the establishment, by its nature, controls institutions. That's part of what Julian Assange exposed. Justice and our values and principles as conveyed to us through the legacy media is a kind of veil, a kind of insidious fog that masks reality and distracts us from deeper truths. Julian Assange did incredible work in revealing to us the nature of hypocrisy and corruption when it comes to foreign wars, when it comes to corporate corruption. And now Julian Assange is having a hearing. The hearing is being presided over by of course a member of the establishment. Let's have a look at the difficulties that Julian Assange faces and the ridiculousness of a hearing being presided over by an establishment figure that's been personally affected almost at every turn whose career is almost defined by not liking Julian Assange being the person that presides over the case. One of the Two high court judges who will rule on Julian Assange's bid to stop his extradition to the US represented the UK's secret intelligence service MI6 and the Ministry of Defence. Now, by the time you're watching this, the hearing may have already concluded that Julian Assange doesn't have the right to appeal, or by some miracle, that he does have the right to appeal because they can turn these things round really quickly, but they more likely will take an incredible amount of time to take all the air out of it. What I'd like you to pay attention to is the astonishing gall of the establishment that doesn't conceal that Judge Jeremy Johnson and Dame Victoria Sharp at almost every turn have connections to the very kind of incidents and stories that WikiLeaks and Assange in particular revealed. Their hubris is so complete that they can sort of publicly declare that they've represented MI6, they've represented the police, they've represented the government, they have special clearance, and in a way what this shows you is The nature of the establishment. Not only is the establishment, by its nature, corrupt and self preserving, but also it doesn't really. Fear that you have any power to impede it, interrupt it, or even challenge it. Otherwise, they would surely keep the kind of things we're about to reveal secret. This is astonishing. Justice Jeremy Johnson has also been a specially vetted barrister cleared by the UK authorities to access top-secret information. When people talk about systemic corruption, I suppose what's in fact being discussed is the impossibility of challenging certain structures and certain systems. That they're so congealed and concealed and controlled that even to penetrate them is a ridiculous and almost inconceivable task. If you have that kind of special clearance, if you've been to those schools and universities, if you've represented MI6 and the Ministry of Defence, how will you impartially view a figure like Julian Assange, who has at every turn challenged establishment authority, exposed corruption in war, exposed war crimes? He's not going to be able to go, no, think about this, we've actually been wrong. This is a figure that's emerging from the establishment to evaluate the interests of the establishment. What's being revealed by the Assange case is the intractability of the establishment and the impossibility of true justice within it. Johnson will sit with Dame Victoria Sharp terrifying name. And now (laughs) the compassionate, the friendly, the lovable, Dame Victoria Sharp. Oh no, get Justice Jeremy Johnson back. I fucking hate you and all. His senior judge to decide the fate of the WikiLeaks co-founder. If extradited, Assange faces a maximum sentence of 175 years, which you'd have to become a tortoise to serve. People don't live that long. His persecution by the US authorities has been at the behest of Washington's intelligence and security services, with whom the UK has deep relations. Some of their deep relations, as Edward Snowden revealed... ...is the sharing of private data between five eyes countries... ...that includes the UK and US... ...which is sort of illegal... ...certainly against the principles of justice... ...and clarity and transparency that they espouse. How is the exposure of crime being treated as criminality? Assange's journalistic career has been marked... ...by exposing the dirty secrets of the US and UK... ...national security establishments. He now faces a judge who has for and received security clearance from some of those state agencies. As with previous judges who have ruled on Assange's case, this raises concerns about institutional conflicts of interest. They're not conflicts of interest, it's the mechanic of the system. As they say, it's not a bug, it's a feature. How can it ever be the recipient of justice when the system itself functions in order to prevent that? It would mean the system breaking apart. It's comparable to so many arguments. If you wanted to repay the true cost of imperialism, you'd have to dismantle the royal family, the nation. It's one of those issues that shows you the problem with the institutions themselves. That's why we are fascinated with this case, because you can't have justice for Julian Assange without a true reckoning for the deep state corporate corruption, the military-industrial complex. And you know, of course, because you watch our channel, that these are the problems that define our age. These are the problems that, since the various forms of incarceration of Julian Assange, have become more and more prevalent. Think how often we're talking about censorship. Think how vigorously the pursuit of censorship is defining our age right now. Hate speech laws in Ireland, the laws that have been passed in Canada, the online safety bill in this country, which, of course, is presented to you as, we're just trying to protect children. How are we going to protect children? By controlling the information you have access to. What Julian Assange did is he punctured that facade, gave us a bunch of information so we could decide for ourselves whether or not we wanted to support foreign wars. Many people concluded that they didn't want to support foreign wars and Julian Assange went to jail for a very long time. Exactly how much Johnson has been paid for his work for government departments is not clear. Records show he was paid twice by the government legal department for his services in 2018. The sum was over £55,000. Imagine if this was to do with Donald Trump and Donald Trump was being being adjudicated over by someone that previously worked for him. The legacy media would be outraged. Think already of what's being revealed to you just by this story. The BBC aren't starting going, the judge in the Julian Assange case has already previously sort of acted against Julian Assange. You won't see that on the BBC. You might see in some of their 24-hour coverage a few shots of outside the Royal Courts of Justice. You might hear a a pundit saying that Australia are now supporting his release. What you will not be able to see is how this case demonstrates the nature of intrinsic corruption between media the state corporations because that would challenge the system itself that's why Julian Assange is important what he did was brought us to a point where we had to reevaluate the nature of these systems in themselves recognize oh no these systems are totally corrupt and you all feel that now that's what this new movement is about it's about recognizing these institutions are unreliable whether it's the media the judiciary or parliamentary or congressional politics there's such a requirement for reckoning that a hearing like like this can only really be theatre. Justice Johnson became a Deputy High Court judge in 2016 and a full judge in 2019. His biography states he has been often acting in cases involving the police and government departments. As a barrister in 2007 he represented MI6 as an observer during the inquest into the deaths of Princess Diana and Dodi Al-Fayed. Okay! Nothing to see here! Johnson worked alongside Robin Tam QC previously described by legal directories as a barrister who does an enormous amount of often sensitive work for the UK government. Why is the work sensitive? If you think about it, what your government's supposed to be is you pay for them out of your taxes. You vote for them as your democratic right and then they've got all this sensitive information that you're not allowed access to, presumably to protect you. That's what's declared in order to protect you. But I think we're all starting to realise that it's in order to control you. What is sensitive is if everyone knew this information, we'd have mass disobedience on our hands. So you better control that information. At the time, Foreign Office sources could not recall a previous occasion when MI6 had appointed lawyers to an inquest. Hmm. MI6 was reportedly so concerned by possible revelations during the inquest that Johnson was appointed to sit in on the hearing. He reportedly received a brief from MI6 in advance of the inquest and was tasked with providing such assistance as the coroner may require. The coroner? Why is the coroner going to require assistance from a lawyer? This is a bit weird, isn't it? Johnson has also represented the UK Ministry of Defence on at least two occasions occasions. I mean, if ever there was anyone that's going to have a grudge against Julian Assange, it's the person who's representing the Ministry of Defence. In 2013, he acted for the department during the high-profile al sweady inquiry, which looked into allegations that British soldiers torture and unlawfully killed Iraqi prisoners in 2004. The MOD's lawyers said the Iraqi allegations were a product of lies and that those making the claims were guilty of criminal conspiracy. Many of the WikiLeaks' revelations included improper conduct by military personnel, the illegal bombing of territories in the Middle East, torture and unusual practices by service personnel. We can get into the morality of individual soldiers when they are wearing their fatigues and charged by their nation. That's an interesting thing. But institutional corruption and the concealment of that is a very interesting subject. And right in the wheelhouse of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, Judge Jeremy Johnson literally defended those allegations. You couldn't have someone that has more vested interests. Jeremy Johnson literally has a long history of defendants offending the establishment from the type of revelations that wikileaks made it's ridiculous that you would appoint someone with so many intrinsic connections to julian assange and these types of stories unless what you wanted was for the appeal process to falter and be halted
4: all right ladies and gentlemen it is that time of the year to donate here to kpfk We need your help. We want to stay on the air and we are all donation based. Without your donations, we will not exist. So, what you need to do is call right now 818 985 5735. That's 818 985 5735, or you can go to kpfk.org and donate. Give us a hundred bucks. Give us 200 bucks. Give us 500 bucks. Think about all that money you waste on Starbucks non fat Frappuccino mocha lattes. You could be redirecting that to this wonderful news program and keeping us on the air because we need your money to stay on the air. KPFK is, I think, maybe the first publicly funded radio station in the U.S. I think, maybe. Don't quote me on that, allegedly. Uh, So it's obviously a historic station and you're listening to it and you must like it a little bit. And if you like it a little bit, donate a little bit. Give us a call, 818-985-5735, kpfk.org. You can donate online. Maybe that's easier. I know that's how I like to do it. No, I don't. I'm lying. I like calling. I like calling 818-985-5735 because I like to hear someone's voice. That way, there's a witness to this altruistic thing I'm doing for all of humanity, giving money. If I do it online, it's good. It's good but nobody gets to witness how awesome I am. So either way, we'll take it. 818-985-5735 or go to kpfk.org. Please, we really do, seriously, we really do need your donations uh, to keep keep the station functioning. Give us a call right now. A veteran cop who says he doesn't identify as Caucasian wants to change the racial designation in his personal file from white to one he believes is more appropriate. Even taking a genetic test to bolster his contentions, but claims the department won't let him. That's according to a $1 million civil rights lawsuit filed by Officer Mohammed Youssef, who joined the Chicago Police Department in 2004, and, quote, was compelled to identify as a Caucasian despite not being as white, unquote. Now, Youssef, who is of Egyptian descent and currently identifies as Egyptian and African-American, wants a federal judge to make the CPD update his records to accurately reflect his race as North African. While other CBT officers can't correct their gender to match their gender identity, other officers, like Youssef, was barred from obtaining accurate racial designations matching their racial identity, the lawsuit states. "Youssef's attorney, Gianna Basil, said she sees the lawsuit, which she described as the first of its kind, as a referendum of sorts on quote, identities changing and fluid nature, unquote. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Who is running the world? Is it a cabal of wealthy elites
0: communicating with space aliens? Jimmy Dore takes a look. Mel Kay is here. She spent 20 years in media, film, and investigative journalism in Hollywood. The show's purpose, she says, is to inform the public of the embedded forces geopolitically and within America that are hell-bent on a long-planned one-world government where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness will be replaced with surveillance, compliance, conformity, and control. I didn't know you were a white supremacist until I read your bio. So that's not good. Yeah. Um,
6: aren't we all? Aren't we all these days? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, we are in crazy times. And, uh, you know, we just got to show up wherever we can and try to tell people that America is equally uh, in danger as the rest of the world right now. And some people just don't see it.
0: Now, how did you what what made you come to this? uh you know, conclusion.
6: Uh, Well, I've been looking into a lot of this stuff for a really long time. You know, I started in journalism, then I was a screenwriter for many years and I kind of split, put both together in historical drama. And I wrote a lot of projects about escaping communism. I wrote projects about, uh, I've been in Jerusalem. I wrote projects about uh, post Vietnam war and all of that. And then as um, time went on, I just kept seeing the name, same name, same money on my show. I follow the money a lot. Geopolitically, I call it the international banking, cartel. And uh, after you do that enough times and you write about enough post war stuff, you realize nothing's changing until uh, a lot of our history is revealed that has been hidden from us, especially in America. And frankly, I just think that our country is captured right now. I think that we're living in an illusion of right and left, Republican and Democrat, when the entire nation is, uh, I believe, uh, dealing with something extraordinary and a lot of people don't want to see it or talk about it. And I feel like if I don't, then then you know, who am I? What am I doing with my life if I can't say, listen, America, we're in big danger because our country has been uh, usurped and uh, we the people are no longer control and whatever i can do to give some control back to the people i feel like it's important who
0: do you who do you think has you usur- i agree with you by the way and this is a false left right dichotomy and that's what the, the the news media which is owned by the people who want you to yeah. to be afraid of your neighbor instead of the people who run things and right. it works like a charm but who do you say who do you think has usurped the united states and who's actually in control
6: well, I think there's two le- there's two things here. One's geopolitical, and one is in America. And to me, you know, this is uh, um, I do believe that in our lifetime, and certainly uh, last hundred years, the biggest fraud uh, perpetrated on the world is the United Nations. And uh, I, I trace the United Nations and what I call their tentacles of their different uh, globalist organizations to being um, above all of our nations at this point. I call them, you know, the public-private partnership. A lot of people point <laughs> to the World Economic Forum, but it's way bigger than that. And above them is the International Banking Cartel, I identify as the Bank of International Settlements at the top, IMF, World Bank underneath, and then all the you know, uh, UNESCO, World Health Organization, IPCC, Chantham House, Council of Foreign Relations, the supranational group. Uh, I, I call them the parent company of planet Earth and that they, they just allow us to live here in their minds. And then when you jump to America, I think it's very clear that our country has been captured by uh, what I believe is a fourth branch of the government that uh, has no uh, uh, nobody nobody oversees them nobody they're not accountable to anyone and they're working with what i I consider the fifth column or the parent company of the united states of america that runs everything i don't think our politicians on either side have any power at all in america right now and i think the american people have to realize our intelligence agencies intelligence community so to speak is basically a fourth branch of government right now that's controlling all the rest of them they're all terrified of them and uh You know, they're playing games with us. Even this current thing with Julian Assange, it's the same thing, the same cover ups, the same people. And as long as we're playing left and right and allowing Intel uh, news channels that are run to do this cognitive warfare on all of us to keep us divided, we can't see uh, who's really pulling the strings. And at this point, I think it's pretty clear that the corporations and the banks and the Intel agencies with their big tech partners are running America. And we, the people of the United States, aren't being listened to or even acknowledged at this point.
0: Yes, and to the point that even uh, about 10 years ago, uh, Princeton did a study which they determined what you just said is true, So, but they didn't say it quite that way. They said that uh, the United States is not a democracy, that we live in an oligarchy, and so what you just pointed out is the oligarchs that are actually running the, the country, which is the banks, the corporations, and the intel agencies that work for the banks and the corporations. The intel agency doesn't work for the president, and they don't work for the the Congress. They work for the banks and they work for the corporations. That's the way it's always. It's called the permanent state. Right. They they they, they would say this when Donald Trump was president. Hey, we were here before you were president. We're going to be here after you're president. We're the ones who really run things. And they would say this out in the open. And yeah. and so that's called the permanent state. Some people call it the deep state. And people don't want to re- people still so easily get caught up. In this left right dichotomy, they get caught up with hating Trump, for instance. Yeah. And and uh, they get caught up in thinking that their neighbor is a white supremacist Nazi who wa- I have. A, my, my old roommate, every time I talk to him, he says, Jimmy, these right wingers, they want to they want to institute Sharia law in America. That's that's what he's afraid of. He's afraid of he's afraid of the religious oh, right. God.
6: Uh, Well, I mean, that level, but you have to understand I'm sure you've had people on your show, I know you've had guys from the Grey Zone on and other people you can go through the the NATO cognitive warfare manual on using our brains as weapons against each other they have perfected the uh, Michael Aquino mind wars to such an extent using the big tech and the social media and whatever else they're using, that people have no idea that we're all equally victims of this usurped psyop on all of us at the same revolutions Uh, obviously they're pulling one on us, but this is the whole NED, CIA, divide and conquer, make us all fight each other, divide us into pieces by class, by everything, so that we can't see them. But I think that they've made a lot of mistakes, obviously, during the pandemic. They overplayed their hand. People saw a lot of that. How's this happening worldwide at one time, the transfer of wealth? But so much has happened since that if you are still believing that Donald Trump is the problem in America, I mean, and and even still, that the president has any power right now in America... Then you really just don't know what's happened to our nation, and you can kind of trace it back, I believe, to the uh, two things. I know you talk about PNAC. I think that's a big issue, but also uh, the Patriot Act is the most unconstitutional, disgusting thing that happened to this country. And I'll tell you what: the Patriot Act is was the beginning of the police state that we live in now, and we are not a free nation. And until we deal with the Patriot Act and the and the branches of government that came out of that to create the fourth branch that has no oversight and and roams freely, I guess blackmailing everyone that they have to that they can't control then we the people of the united states have lost so we have to start to realize that we need to unite over one thing which is freedom and liberty and transparency and start to really be honest about you know the the total uh egregious taking of our privacy and our our you know, every institution in this country is being controlled by people that don't care about any of us at all. Not here, not anywhere in the world. I call them the Fourth Reich. And and frankly, I, I believe that they are. And this one doesn't have any allegiance to any nation, to any people, to any flag, to any religion, to any anything. They just want power for power's sake right out in 1984. And, and they're very dangerous people. That's well- what I believe.
0: Well, that's what I've been trying to impress upon people is that the people who actually run this country don't care about this country, right? If, if there was a civil war inside this country, they actually are – they would be happy uh, yeah. because ca- chaos always favors – The establishment, um, they want you to think, as they try to instigate a civil war in this country, they want you to think the problem is half the country is trying to do it. No, it's the billionaire class through their media that is making your neighbor your enemy. And don't let, don't fall for it. That's the message of this show. People who voted for Trump aren't your enemy. People who voted for Trump were crushed under the lockdowns imposed on us by the billionaire class, and they're feeling the same kind of uh, economic pain that you're feeling, and they want you to blame your neighbor for the pain you're feeling because of those lockdowns uh because your neighbor wouldn't take a vaccine that by the way didn't work the way they said it did in the first place
2: don't push me cause i'm close to the edge i'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes it makes me wonder how i keep from going under
4: the UK government ought to seize property owned by Russian oligarchs in the country and use the money to fund housing for Ukrainian refugees. That's what the London mayor has argued. Official estimated that the sale of these assets could potentially generate over $1.4 billion dollars the EU, U.S., and other Western countries, froze approximately $300 billion of Russian central bank assets shortly after Russia launched its military operation against Ukraine in February 2022. Of that sum, some $26 billion of Moscow's sovereign funds is being kept by the UK, the Bank of Russia has estimated. Individuals who have found themselves on London's sanctions list have also seen their property rights restricted by British authorities. While there have been multiple calls to direct the money towards the reconstruction of Ukraine, the g 7 are still debating on the best way to do it, considering potential legal implications. The London mayor wrote, I urge the government to seize property assets held by allies of Putin, as well as setting up an effective register of overseas property beneficial ownership. According to the mayor, the sale of assets belonging to Russians accused of corruption or links to the Kremlin could provide funding for more than 4,000 low-cost accommodation units. He also argued that the U.K. government's efforts to confiscate sanctioned individuals' assets, while laudable, did not yet go far enough, with certain loopholes still apparently existing. In a post on X, the mayor admitted that two years ago he had already put forward a proposal aimed at preventing the capital's housing market being used as a playground for international oligarchs, and accused the British government of doing little to halt the flow of foreign funds into the city since then. In an interview published on Monday, the Russian finance minister warned that Moscow would respond in kind, should Western nations appropriated its frozen sovereign funds. He noted that Russia has frozen Western assets on a comparable scale. The minister also claimed that the steps taken by the U.S. and European authorities over Russian sovereign funds have already undermined global trust in the dollar and the euro. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Homelessness has been an exponentially growing issue in California since before the pandemic. Kim Iverson and Kevin Dalton discuss the possible causes and solutions to this humanitarian crisis.
3: Um, some areas, I believe, even now where you live, Boise, Idaho. I think Boise, my hometown, has made um, homelessness illegal. I think.
7: Yeah, I think it's as far as being illegal. You can't have a a complete setup stay up. Uh, so if you have a tent, if you have uh, items, you need to pack them up and take them somewhere for the day. Um, there's there's definitely a few homeless throughout uh, Boise I've seen them and as we're traveling throughout the state. Um, it's not... Near what right. it is uh, in in Los Angeles. I mean, I I it is every now and again you see someone you know out here that's that's struggling, but it's it's not even the same people. I mean these these guys out here. It, don't don't appear to be the same wildly drugged out mentally ill people that, that you're getting out there right you know? and, and maybe that and, has to do with access
3: what, do you think because idaho is like idaho you can't even get mar- it's the lone state where you can't even get cbd or uh any marijuana you know there's no medical marijuana there the state is not going to be allowing that anytime soon. ultra ultra conservative state so do, do yeah, you think it's it, do you think it's access it, 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 sorry. Go ahead. <laughs>
7: if, if you're if you're in it for the drugs, this is a pretty bad place to be homeless at. Um, you know the the weather is not terribly inviting to the homeless, especially right. this time of year. So it leads me to believe that if you're if you're homeless out here in Idaho or Boise anywhere, um, you're. There are there are other reasons. It's probably more mental illness. It's, uh, you know, it's it's job training, separation from family. There are so many other things that get people on the street. But if you are looking for your fentanyl fix, you're not going to find it here like you would anywhere else.
3: Right. So maybe access to drugs has something to do with why bigger cities have more homelessness because they do have easier access to gaining these types of substances and whatnot. Uh, And also probably just larger population. You're going to have uh, larger uh, numbers of people with mental illnesses or drug abuse, I suppose. I don't know. Um, But the, the thing about making it illegal. So this is also a subject that has been hotly debated because people will say, well, what are you going to do? Throw them in jail for being homeless. It's not, you know, they can't help that they're homeless at that moment. Like the homelessness itself can't be a crime. But on the flip side, the argument is, well, you don't have to put them in jail. If the state, one of the arguments is if the state or the city or wherever makes homelessness a crime, then it would be potentially incumbent upon the state to find a fix, like take them someplace. There's got to be a place where they can go legally where they can be. Sure. And it would cause this sort of like, you can't be homeless here. Here's the place you can be this is where you need to go. Don't come back here. And if you keep coming back here, we're going to keep dropping you back off where you're supposed to be. And, you know, like there's kind of this, they don't have to go to jail, but maybe it could be someplace else where they can be and and be overseen by social workers, get treatment or something along those lines. Of course, that does cost money. Sure. But maybe in the long run, less money. I don't know.
7: Yeah, money money is is not the problem. You know, like I said, sixteen billion dollars has been spent, so I don't think it's the funds; it's the allocation of of the funds. That's how we're doing it. Yeah. Um, for me, if someone if someone said, Kevin, you know, here's here's your magic wand, how would you solve homelessness? Yeah. Um, in California, the first thing I start doing is enforcing the laws, specifically with drugs. Um, I'm going to make it unbelievably hard to get illegal drugs in in California. If we have to bring in the National Guard for a time, that's fine. The thing what drug dealers are going to do is not do it there anymore. Drug dealers are the ultimate business people. And if something gets too difficult, if they're not making money there anymore, they're going to go elsewhere. The drug users will follow them. Um, they'll, They'll go. They want to go where the supply is. The drugs are going to take a lot of people you know if you just said go elsewhere with the drugs guess what take it up to Oregon. I don't care what you do up there don't do it here. I think you would have a you would you would have a hundred thousand people that would run for the the northern border in California overnight. They want the drugs. The people that are left over, these are the people who we can now go okay, these are the people that want help. They are the people who have the mental illness, who have a lack of job training. I mean, how many of the people out there, if we said, look, let's get you sober, let's get your meds taken care of, let's teach you how to weld, let's teach you how to be a plumber, let's give you a skill and, and make you a productive member of society again. Um, it, it is, it's no longer acceptable to just sit on the street right. and, and do drugs, go elsewhere for that. Um, and like I said, we don't have to make new laws. We just make it really, really hard. And then all of a sudden Oregon is going, What is going on here? Why do we have a hundred thousand new drug right. addicts in our in our state? We need to make it really hard for them to do that. And then they chase them up to Washington. Right. And but but, but let's Washington-
3: be but let's be somewhat realistic on this. Because sure. here's the thing. California, let's, let's put it this way. Let's say all of that was done, except California was the last and would likely be the last state to do this. So everyone else in the whole country made it really, really difficult, meaning they all came here. And now they're all here because this would be the likely scenario of that. California's last. California says, all right, fine. We'll now, we'll now start to enforce these rules, but there's nowhere else for them to go because all the other states have already done it. So what do you still do with all of these people?
7: Well, I, I think you have 49 out of 50 proofs of concept. We just said, look, California, I, I know you want to be California and do and, and make the absolute wrong decisions uh, every single time. But look what we did everywhere else. We've, we've made this not a problem anymore. You can continue to make it a problem. Um, we, we just you know, kind of going back to the honesty and being adults, we just finally have to go look this isn't what we're doing anymore yeah or commit or just say look you know what drugs are drugs are essentially decriminalized which they did in Oregon, and overdose deaths you know skyrocketed by like 37 percent um or we'd be adults and say look we're not going to do this anymore um, you know, uh, we need to slow, slow the fentanyl, slow everything else. I mean, it's fentanyl, you know, it's not even heroin anymore. It's, yeah. it's all fentanyl out on the streets that are, that's the major cause. And we just, we can't enable, um, and that needs to be done everywhere. There, there isn't going to be a safe consumption site. There's not going to be, uh, there, there's not going to be harm reduction quote-unquote harm reduction that's that's going to fix this. It's just going to be adults.
3: Why don't we, I think it's a good idea to have them have some place to go um, where it's like, look, you can't be homeless. It's illegal. We made it illegal. <laughs> I, I think we should. I think we should just say it's illegal. You can't be out on the street. We're not going to put you in jail, but here's other places where we are going to take you. There's an encampment that we built shelters where there's, you know, you can safely be in a, reasonably safe in a small little, you know, tiny home type thing, um, a room uh, that is their social workers trying to help you. And maybe that is where they go. I mean, I don't know if this idea would work. And maybe you tell me where the blocks are on this idea. But in my mind, I would think set up this encampment where they go, a social worker assesses them or a number of social workers. And from there, they get committed to maybe a mental institution that's going to help them overcome their mental, you know, issues, especially if they're highly, highly, and of course, it would be—I would think—some sort of like checks to ensure that the people who are truly mentally ill are making it into the mental institutions, and not people that we just don't like, or people that we just think, "Oh, you're crazy." When really, they're maybe slower, not all that—you know—they're—they're—they're they're, they're not as intelligent or something, and so—and and they're not crazy. Um, so, making sure that the right people go into those. The other people—they go to drug r- drug rehab programs. They have to get clean. Um, you know, in
7: in California, there are there aren't hundreds. There are. thousands. Thousands of homeless nonprofits. And you've got all of these guys, a lot of them are legitimately trying to do great work. But I, I always describe it as you've got a thousand people trying to knock down a giant redwood with a bunch of toothpicks and they're just needling at this to- at this redwood and it's never going to come together. But if you can harness all of those people, all of these groups together and turn these toothpicks into an axe, we have a chance of taking on this, this gigantic redwood. And it's harnessing all of those people and bringing them to an area like, like you're suggesting. I, I love that idea. I thought about, okay, Take all the decommissioned military bases up in right. the state of California. And if you can send 10,000 troops out to the middle of the desert, and within a week, you've got housing hospitals facilities sewers dug. you've got all this infrastructure most of which actually already exists on these military bases and then exactly like you said huge triage process we bring everyone in everyone gets uh evaluated several times over people are dying right people are dying they're suffering and i would like to not have that be the case anymore.
3: Don't push me,
2: cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under.
4: Yeah, And guess what time it is? It's that time of the evening when you reach into your pocket and you make. A big donation here to KPFK. That's right. You're going to call 818-985-5735 or you're going to go to kpfk.org and you're going to pull out that American Express Platinum card, unlimited uh, unlimited credit on that thing, and put like, I don't know, like 800 bucks on it. Donate 800 bucks to KPFK. That's right. Keep us on the air. We know a lot of you listeners, you have big pockets. You're always doing fancy things on the weekend, like going to get a massage, going to we but instead of doing that, donate here. Help keep KPFK on the air. That's right. Call 818-985-5735 or go to kpfk.org. You can donate online. It's easy. And you will feel good after you do it. You will. I promise you. I always do. I donate. I w- I'm a volunteer here. I still donate. I'm a liar. I haven't donated yet, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it within the next week. I'm going to call and donate, and you should too. 818-985-5735, kpfk.org. Do it right now. Give us some money, and we will keep this news flowing into your earholes. holes. Ooh, you Ooh, KPFK Rebel Alliance News,
7: Los Angeles. A meeting was held Tuesday at the U.N. Security Council in New York to discuss the current situation in Syria, where after 13 years of war by U.S.-backed jihadists seeking to drive the elected government from power, Millions have gone homeless for a decade or more, while U.S. and EU-imposed sanctions have driven much of the population into abject poverty. Since 2014, aid has been delivered via the U.N. and other groups into Syria from Turkey, Iraq, and Jordan at places annually authorized by the Security Council. This was Syria's permanent representative to the U.N., Ambassador Kusei, Adak, speaking through a translator.
2: Thank
8: you, Madam President. Madam President, for more than 144 days, the world at large has been seeing war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide committed by the Israeli occupying authorities against the Palestinian people. Regrettably, the Security Council is paralyzed because one country, one member of this council prevented it from discharging its responsibility in maintaining peace and security in our region. The US for four times used the veto to prevent the condemnation of Israeli hostilities and stopping these hostilities in flagrant disregard of the will of member states to this council in particular and the wider UN membership in general. In a vicious endeavor to intensify and escalate tensions in our region, Israel persists in its attacks on Israeli lands, targeting residential blocks and houses of safe civilians. The last of these strikes was on the 21st of February. It targeted a residential building in a Khafre Susa neighborhood in the capital Damascus. As a result, martyrs have fallen. And many civilians have been injured, in addition to physical damage to private property. Mr. President, we listened attentively to the briefing of Special Envoy Geer Pedersen. We reiterate that the government of Syria will continue its cooperation with him in his capacity as a facilitator of the Syrian-owned, Syrian-led political process, the process that should continue without any foreign interference.
7: For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar.
8: For KPFK's
1: Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. The International Court of Justice has wrapped up public hearings on Israel's decades-long occupation of Palestinian territories. Most participant nations and organizations have strongly condemned the policies and practices carried out by Israel in the occupied Palestinian territories for over five decades. Max Chivili has this report.
9: On Monday, the Hague-based International Court of Justice heard the final day of submissions on the legal consequences of the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories since 1967. Over the six days of the public hearings, 52 nations and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the Arab League and African Union, presented their arguments to the court. The first to speak on the final day of the ICJ hearings was the Turkish representative who joined a large number of nations condemning Israel's decades-long brutal policies in the Palestinian territories. Ankara pointed the finger at those nations which won't stop supporting Tel Aviv, despite 30,000 innocent people have been killed in the Gaza Strip.
4: Those who should do it are, are well known, the Israeli supporters in the Security Council, it is their responsibility. Indeed, most of the international community is against, is aware of this injustice and is trying to do something.
9: Palestinian representatives opened the proceedings on Monday last week by accusing Israel of having subjected Palestinians to decades of discrimination, leaving them with a the choice of displacement, subjugation or death. Two days later, the UK asked the court not to offer an opinion at all on the legal consequences of Israel's occupation.
2: Unfortunately, the UK came with the political arguments and here we are in a legal body. Unfortunately, their legal argument was very weak and we believe that the court will dismiss it. The Israeli practices and measures and its presence in the occupied Palestinian territory is unlawful and unlawfulness should have consequences.
9: This ICJ case was prompted by the UN General Assembly in December 2022, and it is different from another ICJ case filed by South Africa, which has accused Israel of genocide in Gaza. Outside the court, activists showed their support to besieged Palestinians during all days of proceedings.
1: There's also not an excuse for the other countries to say, well, we are not complying with this um, legal system that we uh, all agreed upon. I'm here
10: to, uh, to just show the support, to, uh, to say to the whole world that uh, the genocide should stop. And this is the only way actually to, to, uh, to support our people in, in Palestine, in Gaza.
9: The court is expected to issue its advisory opinion on Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories within six months. Despite having no binding force, the court's opinions nevertheless carry great legal weight and moral authority. However, it must be said, the ICJ has no enforcement arm.
1: Yemen has held a forum on the pro-Palestinian operations against Israeli interests in the Red Sea. Press TV correspondent Abdul Latif Al-Washali reports from the Yemeni capital, Sana'a.
10: The Yemeni office of the presidency organized the first political forum to discuss the political security and strategic implications and dimensions of the Yemeni pro-Palestine operations in the Red and Arabian seas. Political and legal experts, academics and researchers from Yemen and abroad participated in the event.
2: The Red Sea battle led by Yemen in support of the Palestinian people within the Battle of the Al-Aqsa flood goes beyond beyond. beyond imposing a siege on the Israeli entity and its interests in the region. Yemen draws a new equation and a new reality for the region. Today, the situation has changed, and Yemen is leading a battle that will have major effects in the region and liberate the region from American influence."
10: Participants underscored the importance of blustering Yemen's naval operations, which have proven effective in impacting the Western economy, and in particular that of Israel amid its genocide war on Gaza. They pointed out the significant decline in activity at Israel's Elad port.
9: Certainly, the military operations in the Red Sea strongly affected the Israeli economy and this is acknowledged by the Israelis themselves. The ports were disrupted, the prices significantly rose, and it led shipping and insurance costs for commercial ships also jump, and this was reflected in the stability of the prices of basic materials and commodities in the occupying entity. Israeli industries were also greatly affected, and the losses were not limited to the economic level only, but included the strategic level to the point that many Israeli projects were stopped, such as the NEOM project and other projects.
10: Since the onset of the Israeli genocide war in Gaza, the Yemeni armed forces have carried out dozens of naval operations against Israeli-linked vessels in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, imposing a blockade on Israel's maritime navigation. Yemen's Defense Minister, Major General Mohammed al-Atafi, has hailed naval reprisal operations against Israel, stressing that the era of hegemonic influence of the United States and its allies on international waters is over. Experts believe that the ongoing naval operations are not only a show of solidarity with the oppressed people of Palestine, but also a move toward undermining U.S. influence in the region.
1: Telesur News Outlet reports, according to a new study, rice exported by the United States to Haiti contains harmful levels of arsenic and other heavy metals that can increase the risk of several types of cancer, heart disease, diabetes and other ailments. On Monday, the University of Michigan published a report in which it exposes that U.S. food suppliers have been sending rice to Haiti with harmful levels of arsenic and cadmium. The report highlighted that the rice that the Caribbean nation imports exceeds the international limits of concentrations of these metals, and the study amplifies that this issue increases the risk of suffering cancer and coronary diseases. It is worth noting that rice represents most of Haiti's basic diet, and an agreement made by the administration of the former president, Bill Clinton, allows the U.S. to sell rice to Haiti with lower tariffs. The University of Michigan report added that almost all of the samples analyzed exceeded the recommendations of the United States Food and Drug Administration for children's consumption. Furious farmers are hitting the streets across the European Union. They're urging authorities to stem the flow of cheap produce from Ukraine that's putting many locals out of business. Demonstrators in Belgium and Spain are also demanding that Brussels alter their climate change reforms that are leading to much higher costs for farmers in the EU.
0: We work from dawn to dusk very long hours and there is no income because our products have no value. Everything
7: is much more expensive now. We spend a lot. The price of diesel oil and phytosanitary products are super high, similar to a lot of things.
2: I'm from the farmer's market in Ghent and we've gotten a major victory in the sale of our city's public land to big investors. Like in Germany, France and everywhere, there are big investors speculating on farmlands and public lands end up in their hands.
7: We come from Spain today to unite with
2: all European farmers in a united message. Although the claims are each at the national level, they are obviously different, but the background and the union are the same. There is too much bureaucracy in the European Union and in European law towards member countries.
1: Polish farmers have blocked border crossings with Ukraine and spilled 160 tons of Ukrainian grain at the train tracks where they stand. Meanwhile, the EU Commission has urged Kiev to consider... The position of European farmers and start exporting their grain outside the block The best way would be to support Ukraine in transit and transport to seaports and send products to countries where Ukraine has always traditionally sent its products. What we need for this is a positive approach from Ukraine and some cooperation. Our Ukrainian partners must understand the situation of our farmers. No market can withstand such a level of supply increase. Belgian geopolitical expert Ermeline De Malkot shared her take on the farmers' protests in the EU. The administrative burden on farmers is enormous, and small farm owners spend a huge amount of time dealing with administrative issues, while large companies obviously have the staff to make their lives easier. At the same time, it is safe to say that this movement will not stop unless there are concrete actions rather than promises. It must be realized that the demands of small farms will be different from demands of big companies. So it's necessary to create a basis of trust in order to stop the strike. And trust is earned through actions. Today people are waiting for action. And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'm Paulina Vasilia,
4: And that will do it for tonight. What a beautiful hour. What an action-packed hour of unfiltered, unhomogenized news just for you. Just for you people right here in beautiful Southern California. Unless you happen to be streaming online at Rebel Alliance News. Then you could be anywhere. You could be in Toledo, Ohio, for all we know. So thank you for tuning in. We are here Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. We will be back here tomorrow. Come and see us. Until then, good night. Hi,
6: I'm
1: Ashley Judd, and I believe that when we listen collectively, change happens. And I believe we should listen to girls and women. I believe that girls and women should speak for themselves, with and for each other, about their bodies, their rights, and their dreams. That's why I think woman-made media is so important, and why we all
8: need to tune in to Feminist Magazine on KPFK.
0: It's leap
4: year, and following this first fun drive of the year, KPFK is making a great leap. We're relocating our operations temporarily from our historic North Hollywood home to a spot in Glendale, about seven miles east. KPFK was launched in 1959 with the great leap of faith that listeners would sustain its operations with their donations. And as we make the figurative leap across the Hollywood Hills and the LA River, your continued donations will assist us in making what we hope will be a soft landing. Our drive continues until March 8th, and with the extra day in February, you have expanded opportunities to show your support by
0: donating online at kpfk.org or by calling in your donation at 818-985-5735 and pressing Option 2. $50.00.